You're listening to Comedy Central. June 26, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. My guests tonight are an author and a former president of the United States, James Patterson and Bill Clinton are here, everybody! Yeah. I'll let you... I'll let you Google which one was president. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Do you guys know uh, Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines? He's kind of like Trump if Trump was a foreigner instead of a guy who hates foreigners, right? Uh, He's creepy around women. He dislikes Obama for no good reason. And just like Trump, he's always saying something controversial. Outrage growing in the Philippines after its leader called God stupid. Late last week, President Rodrigo Duterte asked why Adam and Eve were created to be allowed to give into temptation. You created something perfect and then you think of a, an event that would tempt and destroy the quality of your work. Who is this stupid guy? Oh, man. That audience did not like that. Yeah, they looked like when the TMZ staff had Kanye West visit them. That's what they looked like. And if you're gonna call God stupid, you don't need to bring up big theological questions about Adam and Eve. I mean, God made a bear that's too fat to That's stupid. (laughs) That's silly. Just pull that up. Meanwhile, back in the US, the Supreme Court voted today five to four to uphold President Trump's travel ban. Yeah. And yeah, congratulations to President Trump because part of what tipped it for him with the Supreme Court is that the court said it wasn't a Muslim ban, because it included North Korea. Yeah, which is amazing. Because remember, people called it a Muslim ban, and so Trump included North Korea and was like, see, it's not a Muslim ban. (laughs) Yeah. He basically did the thing that guys do when they buy condoms. Like, hey, can I get condoms and a pack of gum? Yeah. (laughs) And the Supreme Court was like, he's not trying to smash, he bought the gum. (laughs) So kudos to him. All right, that's the headlines. Let's move on to our main story. Sound effect. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, (laughs) queen of the press room, and mother of lies. (laughs) Ever since a Virginia chicken restaurant asked her to leave this weekend, the big debate in America has been, do government officials have the right to be left alone when they're off the clock? If Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets asked to leave a restaurant, or if Kirsten Nielsen is heckled while she's eating Mexican food, uh, if Stephen Miller is out on a date and somebody, I'm messing with you, that'll never happen. (laughs) Come on. No, 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 for real though, for real. The question is, Is it right for people to protest government officials if they see them in public? And if you listen to a lot of cable news pundits, they have the answer. 
We need to stop all this and begin to behave in a, in a civilized manner. If we can't agree to disagree and let each other be, and neither side wants to do that, it becomes a problem. There are certain lines, I think, that even in this, this breakdown of civility we've had in politics that, that people realize you shouldn't cross. Are you allowed to just kick someone out because you don't agree with their policies or their beliefs? Whatever happened to tolerance? Well, yes. Whatever happened to tolerance? <laughs> tolerance got grabbed by the pussy, didn't you hear? You didn't hear? Yeah, that's what happened to tolerance. Trump called her an animal, locked her up, and threw her kids in a cage. That's what happened to tolerance. Like, these people have more amnesia than the characters in a Lifetime movie. What happened to tolerance? <laughs> and you know, we, we've also heard people say that it's fine to protest government officials as long as you do it during business hours. Protesters target other prominent Trump officials and supporters during their personal time. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is at a restaurant with her family, seven people there. Are her kids watching this? Are her kids seeing her mom being harassed just because they don't agree with her political opinions? It's funny how these people are saying administration officials shouldn't be protested during their off hours as if the administration's policies only work from nine to five, yeah? <laughs> it's not like when the White House staff goes home every night, all of a sudden everyone in America is like, woohoo! I have healthcare back until 9 a.m. tomorrow! Yeah! I've only got... I've only got healthcare for the evening. Does anyone know a good night dentist? Yeah? <laughs> and by the way, night dentist is the job Stephen Miller looks like he should have, just by the way. <laughs> uh, and also, let's, let's not get it twisted. That restaurant owner didn't ask Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave because of her opinions. Okay? She's a senior official of the Trump administration, not some rando with a blog. This person was protesting the government. Sarah Huckabee Sanders just happened to be a part of the government who showed up in her restaurant, right? It's like if I had beef with the Teletubbies, it may have started with Lala, but if Tinky Winky shows up, some shit is going down. <laughs> it's going down. <laughs> Basically, people in power would like to be insulated from the effects of their actions. But if you're in a position where you can influence other people's lives, you shouldn't be shocked when you hear from the people whose lives you affect. Like even athletes get booed by their fans when they're not doing a good job. And sports has no actual effect on people's lives. A missed shot has never shut down a community center, okay? Never happens. I mean, except for that one Shaq free throw that destroyed everything, but <laughs> other than that. And the thing to notice here for me is, Calls for civility. You know, when people are like, you gotta be more civil, you gotta be more civil. It always tends to come from people in a position of privilege, right? Which I understand, to be honest. You know, the person winning in Monopoly is never the person flipping the board. Yeah. <laughs> if you own all the hotels, you'd be like, hey, hey, let's not fight about whose turn it is. Let's just enjoy the game. Come on, guys. Whereas everyone else is like, I've been in jail for seven hours. If this game goes any longer, I'll miss my appointment with my night dentist. <laughs> Oh, by the way, Night Dentist is now a hit show on CBS. <laughs> Night Dentist, when the sun goes down, the cavities come out. <laughs> and you know... <laughs> you know what gets me? You know what really gets me? Is in this whole argument when people say, but Trevor, why can't we be polite? Why not fight hate with love, just like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela? Don't, don't ever forget, in their time, People were not exactly happy with how they protested, right? The British called Gandhi an agitator. Governments around the world called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. And every day we see people on the news and social media saying, why can't these protesters be more like Martin Luther King? He was civil. 
That's why he named it the Civil Rights. <laughs> but what you forget is back when Martin was marching, people were complaining about him the same way these people are complaining about protesters right now. People in Georgia are sick and tired of Martin Luther King. There is Ben, he's attempted to stir up strife, and disorder, and violence. The best thing for King to do is to get out of Alabama as quickly as he can because he's a menace to the peace of this city. Martin Luther King and his coterie of troublemakers who jump about the South like uh, so many fleas on a hot griddle and cause uh, racial rashes where none have heretofore existed. Wow, racists back then were so eloquent. <laughs> a coterie, a coterie. And I like that he says Martin Luther King created racial tension where none existed. Like Dr. King went into the South and was like, y'all are black, what? <laughs> and I know, I know that those leaders may have been racist, but even some people who said they agreed with what Dr. King stood for still didn't approve of how he did it. In fact, at one point, he had a 63% disapproval rating in the US. So look, all I'm saying is, what happened to Sarah Huckabee Sanders isn't nice, but as a government official, people protesting your policies is part of the job. And the good news is, Sarah, there's a ton of other chicken places you can go and eat. <laughs> yeah. And if you're struggling to find one, just ask your boss. We'll be right back. <laughs> co-authors of the political thriller, The President is Missing, which is currently the number one book in the country. Please welcome President Bill Clinton and James Patterson. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Nice uh, to be here. I'm gonna jump straight into it because I have so many questions for both of you. Uh, let's start with the book. Congratulations on being number one in the country. Um, this was an interesting collaboration, you know, because James, you have sold hundreds of millions of books around the world. You're an accomplished author. You've always said that you wish that more people would read. Um, you're writing a thriller about a fictional president, and yet you thought, let me reach out to an actual president to get the facts right. Why did you think that was necessary? Well, I usually just make stuff up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought it would be, I, I, I thought it'd be great. And, and, and I, I've never read a book like this in terms of the authenticity. If you want to know what it's like to be president, this, this will really give you a feeling for it. Right, but it's an extreme version of what it's like to be president because this is a story it's about a, a bad president. Weekend, yes. Yeah, it's a president who goes out, and I won't spoil how it happens, but basically it's a president who discovers that there's a giant cybersecurity threat uh, on the U.S., and he decides to take it in his own hands. He sneaks out of the White House, which is mind-blowing. How, how authentic was that? Did you ask the president if he did oh, that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't ask him if he did. I knew, I, knew is, he, I knew he didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is I didn't. What, what I tried to do is make it as authentic as I could if it did happen. That right. Is, the Secret Service protects a lot of people. The law, I've explained this in the book. The law says everybody else, even like when I was there, Hillary, could, they could sign off of Secret Service protection for a while. There's no provision for the president to do that. It's like a, but you could maybe do it for a couple of hours for purely for privacy reasons. If a right. friend of yours was dying or something like that. 
but you couldn't do it for very long. So we came up with a device. It was his idea the president ought to go missing. And somebody yeah, well, said, well, yeah, that'd be a good idea. That, right? But anyway, <laughs> the, uh, and so we worked out how it could happen and why it made sense in the context of the plot with cybersecurity. But the, but the authenticity thing, that is such a big deal. I mean, if the president went missing, it would happen like this. If there was a traitor in the White House, it would, if there was an attack on the presidential motorcade, it would happen that way. And right. that was the beauty of the collaboration. And, and you're writing, uh, you know, throughout the story, there are so many themes that tie into what America has experienced, is experiencing, and may experience in the future. Uh, you, you have a president that in a different way has gone rogue, a president who's saying, I'm going to do it all by myself. When you were writing this book, were there any parts of, of the current president that you looked at and you were like, yeah, our president needs a bit of that no. crazy in him? No. <laughs> No, we started it before, before the election. Right. Uh, no, because in this case, the president acknowledges that if he did what his adversaries think he did, it would be an impeachable offense. And that if he told them, if he told them why he did what he did, they would have to back down, but he didn't trust them because he thought they would leak it to the press and then his chance of stopping this attack on America would go away. So that's one part of the plot I'll give away. They were just, and it- Don't we give say, away too much. Huh? We say here though, <laughs> you, you cannot run a country when there is literally no trust. But we have seen now for almost 40 years on and off that demonizing your opponent, making people hate them, uh, it's a terrible way to run a railroad, but it can get rewarded at election time. It would be very difficult to write fiction about what's going on now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually. <laughs> he just gave you a whole riff about how authentic this is, and it was until recently. <laughs> it, was a, it was a fair description about how most presidents tried to run the White House, and now at least what I believe is that you try to get talented people who know things you know, don't know, who have right. skills you don't have, you tell them they're not gonna be fired or, or demoted or isolated if they tell you something you don't wanna hear. Right. Then you make a decision. Then if they disagree with the decision, the honorable thing to do is resign. I actually gave stunning endorsements to two people who resigned with honor from my administration because they disagreed with the decision I made. And I think that that's the way to do it. But you want to encourage people to say what they think. Right. And know nothing bad is going to happen to them. Why didn't you do that when you were writing? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the threat that faces America in this book is not unlike a very real threat that we've now learned about real. In, in, in real life and that is the threat of cybersecurity. Many experts warn that wars as we know them will come to end, and cyber warfare is the future. As a uh, former president of the United States, how real is this threat, and what do you think America should be doing to combat it? It is real. It's been building for more than 20 years. In 1997, when I was still in office, I issued the first executive order on cybersecurity. We set up a division of the National Security Council. Today, we spend $15 billion in, at least in the public budget, maybe it's twice that, and some of the intelligence budgets. 
as compared with $630 billion a year on every other kind of defense. Wow. So, and I believe that anything that is electronic can be hacked. This is a thriller, but what happens in this book is real. It could yeah. happen. And it's not a case. People go, well, you know, the lights will go out for four hours. No, that's not the case. Everything goes out. All you, and, 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 and it's erased. All your medical records, all of your bank accounts, Wall Street, it's all gone. It's a funny because there's, some, there's some people who are in debt and they're like, that sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds really good to me. Everything but, is erased? That well, sounds really good to me. Some yeah, people but, will be happy. But if all the... If you put the electrical grid out, you put the backup out, right. and while they were out, you fried all the transformers, a lot of people will die before you got it put back up. Right, and it's, it's a scary place to be in. Um, the book is a thriller. And in many ways, I feel like your journey together as authors has also been a thriller. I've, you know, I've watched you on the road together. You've been promoting the book. Uh, James... Mostly terrific. You talk, fine, mostly. You talk, about, you talk about how traveling around with President Clinton makes you understand what it's like to be Mike Pence. Like, no one pays attention to you. Yeah. You're just, like, randomly in That's the background. But I'll tell you, I picked up a lot of new moves. I've got an eye roll now. Oh, yeah, we love the eye roll. The eye We've roll, seen I that. I got hold my head. Right, right, I right. Got the, you know, so I'm gonna do, <laughs> if you get tall, I'll just be doing this. You're going to be no taking reason. water off the yeah. table at the same time? Is totally. that like you're practicing yeah, yeah, yeah. the moves? Yeah. But, 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 but is, is, is that an interesting, di di uh, I guess, um, relationship to have? Because you, you're working with a president. I it's mean, been a great... It's, he, he's been terrific to work with. I mean, we really cooperated. On, the first two chapters, we rewrote those six times. Could you, could you override him, though, as a president? There never was an argument. We never had a disagreement. There never was an argument. Because you were all afraid? Or... Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, I'm crazy? <laughs> he's got all these... Oh, you know, look. He's got these Secret Service people everywhere, you know. They're out there. They're watching Just us. Two, he Actually, can get two hours and you, and you can handle it together. you should be a little scared now, too, because they're watching you. <laughs> so in this case, I was the apprentice. Oh. Oh, nice. Look at that. I mean, so you... Know, you I mean, were... I, this guy, he's written all these books. Right. I, I read a double ton of them. And the interesting thing was, uh, what I wanted to know was, since I'm a voracious consumer of thrillers and have been for 35 years, uh, you know, I'd call him and say, Jim, it's been 30 pages since we killed anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think you have it tough, and you do do in The Daily Show, okay? I do The Daily Novel. Right, so you're so writing go, yeah. every single day. <laughs> About no, it's same. a novel every day. Right, right, right. If you, if you, um, let's switch and talk about um, what's happening in the country right now. As a former president, you have a unique perspective on many of the issues America is facing currently. Uh, two things I want to talk to you about: civility and immigration. The first is what's happening right now in America: the conversation around civility. People arguing Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, should not have been kicked out of that restaurant. The restaurant owner did something wrong. And, you know, it's about being civil. We should all be nice to each other, even if we disagree. Now, your daughter tweeted out that she believes that government officials should be held accountable or should be spoken to in public because it does shape how they see the world. What are your views on this as a former president? Well, I think that the two are not necessarily inconsistent. That is, it is true that when we were in church once, and Chelsea was about 14. We were in a church that was a, a welcoming church. That is, they welcomed uh, people without regard to their sexual orientation or identity. And this man got up and protested and said we should have been doing more about AIDS. And he was absolutely right. And we wound up doubling funding for treatment and research and paying for about 25 or 30% of the global effort at the time. And it still was nowhere near enough. That, I thought, was fine. 
Um, then you ask yourself, well, should you go from there to asking her to leave the restaurant? That's a decision for the restaurant owner to make. What I'd like to point out is, would it be better if that didn't happen? I think it would. Uh, did I, I worked hard and Nelson Mandela helped me work hard when they were so hateful to me when I was there, personally hateful, not to respond in kind. Right. But, you know, a lot of poison has been poured down America's throat uh, since that 2016 campaign started. Right. Calling the, started off calling Mexicans rapists and murderers. So it's hard to pour poison down other people's throat and not have some of it come back up and bubble up. So, I, uh, so what I would say is, I read the, the article about the lady who owned the restaurant, and I wound up with a lot of respect for the way she debated it. But I also had a lot of respect for the way Sarah Huckabee Sanders handled it. I mean, she was very dignified. She didn't chew him out. She didn't pitch a fit. She didn't call him in them, you know, immigrant loving thugs or whatever. She just got up and left and offered to pay. So maybe what I'd like to see this be the beginning of something where, you know, it would be better if we started talking to each other again. I remember I had three good weeks with Congress once when the Senate Senate majority leader called me a spoiled brat on a Sunday morning television program. Right. So as soon as he got home, I picked up the phone and called him. He said, you called to chew me out, didn't you? I said, yes, I did, but not for the reason you say. He said, what do you mean? I said, your staff told you you had to do this Sunday talk show. You worked all weekend. You woke up with a headache. You were mad you did it. They could tell you were irritated. They baited you with me, and you took the bait. He said, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) And he couldn't believe I wasn't mad at him. We had three good weeks. My point is, that sooner or later, people need to quit tearing each other down and go to work. But I think that you can't foment as much hatred as has been fomented by the administration without having a blowback. So if they want to have more civility, they need to stop the name calling and take the lead like I tell you. When we, when we talk about uh, civility and treating other people like human beings the way we'd like to be treated, the conversation of immigration is one that has really led to, in many ways, the Sarah Huckabee yeah, Sanders story. Absolutely. Um, you see these images of children being separated from their parents at the border. You see the Trump administration calling for a zero-tolerance policy. Uh, What was interesting was then the current president saying that these were actually your policies and (laughs) President Obama's policies that he is, I guess, fighting against, but also enforcing, (laughs) but completely not for. (laughs) First of all, were these your policies? No. They were not. Fine. So now you go to the next thing, which is, as a president... How do you balance keeping your borders intact whilst also treating people who have come into the country undocumented in a humane manner? Well, first of all, every country is entitled to protect its borders. We have two border threats today. Fentanyl coming in from China is killing a lot of Americans. And heroin coming over the southern border is causing a lot of trouble. But there's been almost no net in-migration from Mexico since 2010. It's a made-up problem. Uh, As the mayor of Brownsville, Texas, said the other day, uh, these people are from Central America. They're afraid of the narco-traffickers. The law says that those who have a legitimate fear can be given asylum in our country. 
and those that are disappointed that their countries have been wrecked by narco-traffickers and can't make a living are not eligible. That's the law now. There's a humane way to do that without taking the kids away from the parents. There is nothing in the law that says they have to do this. And it's wrong. So, if you, I'll tell you something, the crime rate among uh, immigrants is much lower than the crime rate of the native-born. The murder rate of, among Muslims is about a third that of the native-born. We need to quit. We need to get the facts straight, take a deep breath, and say, yes, we agree with you. Everybody's got a right to protect their border. Yes, we all care about the victims of immigrant crime. What I did do when I was president is sign a bill saying that if an immigrant, even one popular docu- uh, properly documented, committed a serious crime against an American, they lost their right to stay in this country. But this idea of zero tolerance and throwing, putting these people in cages, doing this to the kids, it's an outrage. And we should stop it now. One of the reasons, in terms of the, of the book, uh, that, that we wanted to do, what we wanted to accomplish, is to remind people how important the job of the president is, yep. how, how difficult it is, how impossible. You, you mentioned the, the four days that, this, that the president of the book goes through are right, very difficult. Right. But we wanted people to think about that. We, we wanted them to think about it when they go to the midterms. Right, Think people, about how important those jobs are. Think how important it is in terms of who you're putting into Congress. And, and when, we, when you were writing the story, was it also important to you to display the relationship the president has with the people around him? Because that yeah. was something that was key in the book as well. Was that, was that really important to yeah, try and I find worked, out? Uh, I worked hard to... We talked through a lot to make sure that, at least based on my experience and my observation of previous presidents, that this is a pretty good take of a well-organized White House where you have strong people who are smart, who know different things and have different skills, and they do their jobs and they make these decisions. And there's some, some drama in the thing. And right? one of the things the president did is he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing so that it would be that these characters would really be flesh and blood. Right. I mean, there was, we were a week away from when we had to hand the book in, and we were still working oh. on um, the, uh, one of the major characters. In and terms of just making that character more... That's more something credible. I've always enjoyed about not just your writing, but your, but your ideas about the characters. You know, you, 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 you have one of my favorite quotes where you say, you believe that everybody loves to read. Some people say, I don't like reading. You're like, no, they just haven't found the right yeah. book. Especially kids. Right. Which book would you think you need to start President Trump on so that he would start to read? <laughs> what would you recommend as a favorite? Uh, you yeah, got, got, got a good example? I, uh, that, that's, a, that's a stumper, I'll tell you. <laughs> any, any, no, I, I don't want to go I'll give you, it's a go. short book. I'm civil. <laughs> no, no, I'm being serious. Yes. Uh, in, at the end of World War I, a German Christian Democrat named Max Weber wrote a book called Politics as a Vocation. It's about 120 pages long. And among other things, he says, number one, politics is hard. It's a long and slow boring of hard boards. And number two, if you take a job where you have power over another person's life, you should be very humble because you put your, because, because you are given temporary power and yet you are not omnipotent, you are not all wise, and you are putting your soul at risk. It was, it was a, it's a great description wow. of 
the importance of politics and the joy of it, but how you can't do it right unless you're humble enough to realize that you're holding other people's lives in your hands and you should value them and take care of them. Wow. The, um... I, th- I think the, the, the greatest lesson for me in, in spending a year with President Clinton is just understanding how this guy's devoted his whole life to trying to do the right thing for, for the people in this country. Wow, that's a, that's a powerful position to be in. It, it's, you know, going back to your point of humility and being humbled, I have noticed a journey that you've been on from the beginning of the, of the book, Press Tour. And that has been the journey of, you know, being asked questions about the Me Too movement. You know, um, we saw your incident on, on, on the morning news where, you know, a journalist said, hey, you didn't apologize and you did apologize and, and that got you a bit wasn't riled up. Hour. Right, wasn't your finest hour, I will say that. And, um, you know, and, and over, over the weeks, I've watched your interviews and I've read what you've said on how these conversations have shaped your, your mind and your understanding of the Me Too movement. Honest question, has it been hard for you to reprogram your brain? Has it been difficult for you to, to go, I have to relearn something that is happening now as opposed to how I've always seen the world? No, it means that I need to not react to the raw pain of having to relive something that happened 20 years ago. And I need to be aware that unfortunately, there are still millions of people every day who face objectification, disrespect, discrimination, and sometimes outright abuse in the workplace, on the street, and at home. And now we're all alive to it in ways we weren't before, and we're all trying to work our way through, not all of us, but most of us are, trying to work our way through how we can use this moment to build a better country in person after person after person's lives. And that should be the number one priority of everybody. And, you know, I regret very much what I did all those years ago, and I tried to pay for it and tried to atone for it and try to be right. But that's, if somebody doesn't remember what the facts were, I I can hardly be angry. It was a long time ago. Right. And so I shouldn't have been angry. I should have not taken my eyes off the fact that there is still, after all these years, there is actual abuse and discrimination and objectification and disrespect, and it happens in the workplace, on the street, I mean, and at home. One of the checks, though, is, is the media, honestly, this should have been dealt with 20 years ago. Oh, I, I, it should have I, been done 10 years ago. I, hear, it all, we knew, I remember being with Ashley Judd on the, on the set of Kiss the Girls, and she was in her 20s, and she was talking about the casting couch then. Right, right, right. No, no. And, story, and it was there. The story I'm, was I'm there. I'm with you completely, yeah. and I guess the should have, would have, could have goes to everyone, and everyone has questioned themselves. But I guess before I let you go, uh, you know, as when we strip away president, when we strip away a man who's one of the most powerful men in the world, as a man... You know, it's, the instinct is to go to a defensive place. As someone, as you said, with your past, your instinct is, is, to, is to get angry if someone misremembers a fact or two. What would you recommend to other men out there to begin the journey of understanding and self-reflection? To become first other-directed. That is, look at what's happening in people's lives. Then you have to ask yourself, how do I think, how do I feel, how do I act? And both 
try to make sure you're doing better, even if you think you're a really good person and you're not aware of ever having done anything wrong. And then asking, starting asking the women in your life, or if you're gay, the other, your partners in your life, whatever your gender. And then look at the workplace. I was really impressed with what Starbucks did after that racial incident. You remember when those guys were discriminated right. against? Oh, I, I remember. I, I mean, remember. that happens to <laughs> yeah. that happens to black people all the time. Something like that, and they immediately said, "You know, we're going to stop this institutionally. We're going to." And so I went in the local Starbucks in this little town where Hillary and I live, and I asked this young woman who was working there. I said. Uh, did you go to your training? Tell me about it. She said, no, because I'm a part-time employee and I was off that day, but I have to do makeup. And I'm so glad they didn't leave us out either. We're all going to do this. We're going to get better at this. That's what we should be, how we should think about this Me Too moment. This is a, we can't waste it. We've got to do better. Thank you so much for your time, gentlemen. It's been an honor having you on the show. Thank you so much. The president is missing, is available now. President Clinton, James Patterson, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.